0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
1: Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to the Spite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Luminera. Whether you require high sensitivity for fluorescence imaging or color reproduction that matches exactly what you see in the eyepiece, Luminera offers a wide portfolio of cameras that are compatible with any microscope and come complete with image analysis software and a four year warranty. Today's presentation is titled Color Image Quality Control and Microscopy and is being presented by Mark Clymer. Mark is a veteran of the microscopy industry, establishing his fundamental skills in biotech and the drug discovery labs at Sanofi, and honing those skills as a product manager at Olympus, managing the core microscope product line in the Americas. Along the way, Mark attended microscopy-based courses at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts and now shares his expertise with students during the immunohistochemistry and microscopy course held each March at the MBL. Mark offers consulting services to microscopy and biomedicine based companies. He is also an independent microscopy and spectrophotometry sales specialist for LAXCO, Inc. He's the author of numerous articles and blogs on microscopy and color management. You may have seen some of his posts to the microscopy and imaging based groups on LinkedIn. Mark invites you to look at him up on LinkedIn after the webinar. During the webinar, there will, be two different pol- there will be three different polls that will ask you for your feedback. These polls will be announced by Mark. The poll will pop up on your screen and you can just click on your answer. Now, as always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any of your questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Mark at the end. And the recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly slash color image webinar, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Mark, for the presentation.
0: All right. Thank you, Amanda, um, for that, that great introduction, also for inviting me to speak today. It is definitely a pleasure uh, to be here. And thanks, everybody out there in the audience, for uh, joining the webinar and to listen to me uh, drone on for hours and hours about color imaging. Actually, that's not true. I'm going to try to keep this uh, this short and sweet. So the first thing I want to do is uh, go over the major topics that we're going to be covering today. Uh, and we'll start uh, the webinar with a, a brief review of some color camera technologies, and then we'll follow that with how to use the technology that we do have. Um, I do have a special surprise for you. I'll be introducing a villain, a bad guy, that uh, really conspires against our attempts to get great quality uh, color images. Finally, we'll review what you've learned and then uh, get on to the questions at the end. So what's the biggest dilemma in color imaging? Is it speed of acquisition? No, Uh, I think many many of the specimens that we are imaging are dead so they're not really moving much, Um, but more so because camera technology has advanced and evolved that uh, we can capture still images and, and even videos at very fast frame rates. So it's, it's not the speed. Um, I believe the biggest issue with color imaging is getting consistent reproducible color and image quality from our equipment, uh, whether it's the equipment itself or how we use that equipment. So shown here is the imaging uh, equipment that I'll be using later. It consists of uh, a basic upright microscope. I've got a halogen Uh, light source on here and I also have a daylight balancing filter. Uh, Up on top is the new Luminara Infinity 3-3UR color CMOS camera. Um, This camera uses uh, one of Sony's newest sensors and the color performance is uh, greatly improved over previous generations. So I'll be using this in a demonstration in a few minutes. Well, I I bet you didn't expect um, already that there was going to be a test. Amanda told you there was going to be a poll, and this this is the first of the three. So, um, we'd like in this poll to get uh, for you to tell us which color technology um, is used in your microscope camera. So, is it um, a uh, number one a bare color array? Um, Is it an LCD filter or a color filter wheel? Um Is it a three chip or a three sensor camera or the fourth? You just don't know, and that's okay too. Um, if you have multiple cameras, enter your choice uh, for just any any one of the cameras, hopefully the one you use most often. So vote now using those polling options and we'll see uh, see what the results are <clears throat> so amanda will will we see these live?
1: Yes, so you should be able to see the results of the poll on your screen. If not, then it looks like about um, 8% use a bare color array, 8% use the LCD or color wheel, and 8% use the three chip camera. However, 76% do not know okay. what color technology is used in the camera.
0: Well that's um interesting results so we've got a fairly balanced uh between the people that do know that they know exactly what technology they have but uh, and a lot of people don't know well here's um what i'm going to do now is uh kind of describe what these three different technologies are so the bare mosaic or bare filter array sometimes you'll hear people call it a bear mask uh, and that's represented here by these uh, blue, green, and red squares on top of the gray, the gray squares. Uh, but they're really red, green, and blue filters that are placed on top of each of the pixels of the camera sensor. Uh, you may then ask, well, okay, if, got, if I've got different all these pixels and all these different color filters on here, how do I get a um, uh, a nice high-resolution image from those? Well, basically, what what the camera firmware does is it then it, it's able to estimate uh, how much. Say, so if we look at this blue pixel here, uh, how much green is in here, and how much red is in here as well, by the neighborhood. So it's able to look at, uh, at the surrounding pixels, and it does that for each of the the channels. So it fills in the green and red for a blue, and the, the blue and red for a green, and the green and blue for red. So So that's what a bare mask filter does. Uh, By the way, this is the most widely used technology um, in color imaging and it's found in digital SLRs if anybody's still using those uh, and cell phone cameras. So um, very common. The three chip or three sensor cameras represented here and um, it uses a prism, uh, splits the light into three to three different color channels as you can see. Uh, there and then it has a different camera sensor um, to detect um, each of these channels what the uh, camera then has to do is to uh, combine then those those color channels into one multicolor image um, the third technology is the filter wheel um, or a liquid uses a filter wheel or a, uh, a liquid crystal device and that is placed between a microscope and a uh, single monochromatic camera uh, the camera captures an image uh, it's, it's similar then to the three chip and the camera is going to capture an image of each of the color channels as the filter wheel changes channel and then has to merge those images to make the full color version so uh, even though we saw 8% across the board, with the exception of a lot of people not knowing what techno- technology they do have in their camera, um, each of these technologies really can deliver very high quality uh, color images. Uh, but wait, we're not done yet. Uh, when it comes to color quality, that is generally going to be dependent on the firmware and the software that's associated with the camera. I'll explain a little bit. Uh, we're all familiar with the name Sony. Sony. They are a huge producer of of camera sensors, but they're not the only uh, chip manufacturer and they don't sell to just one camera company. Uh, Camera components um, are built to specifications, but even then the components vary in quality across the production batches. The camera manufacturer then can select the ones that they want to use. Uh, the different components and then they have to integrate those components into the cameras that we use. So some companies go um, a step further and they, they can create uh, special color management profiles um, what I like to call the secret sauce and the purpose is really to give a particular color essence uh, to an image based on, uh, based on experience. So as a general rule of thumb the more engineering and effort that goes, uh, that a camera company puts into their product, uh, the more it's going to cost. Uh, But regardless of all the extra features and any any secret recipes, the important point uh, is that you want the images that you get with your equipment to be consistent. Then you've got a solid starting point for uh, for any adjustments. Uh, But before we ever begin Imaging, we have to consider light's role in generating color. So let's take a quick look at uh, microscope illumination. Microscopes focus light onto a specimen, and our detectors, whether it's our eyes or the cameras, uh, detect the light that's either transmitted or reflected um, through the specimen. So is all light the same? Uh, I think as you can see here, no, uh, it's not. Uh, In early microscopy, sun was the primary light source. I don't think anybody is using a microscope with a mirror um, and sitting in a a windowsill now. But um, we've since added incandescent bulbs uh, for convenience, followed by the halogen bulb um, that we're probably all familiar with. The latest technology to the party are the LEDs. Uh, In this diagram here that I show, um, you can see how the emission spectrum of each of these light sources varies. Uh, It's important to note, too, that the spectrum for incandescent and halogen also changes as you change the intensity on your microscope, the voltage, as it's represented here. Um, And here you can see that impact on the images. Uh, So to avoid this variation, use the exposure Uh, adjustment that's in your camera software to adjust the brightness of the image rather than changing the light intensity uh, or the voltage on your microscope. Uh, Here also I wanted to show the spectra of a common bare filter array. Uh, The camera firmware uh, accounts for the the peaks and the valleys that we see here in this uh, spectrum. and to help kind of normalize the intensity. So, uh, um, but if, when you combine, this is what a, a, a camera is detecting to the, the variation in the light sources, you can see just how challenging it can be um, to establish uh, a consistency and high quality color across different microscope configurations. So some camera software also makes it easier to get consistent images uh, with better color balance. Uh, I'm only showing a couple of examples here as well. So, um, But your acquisition software may already have some presets like this um, to help balance the color based on the light source uh, of your microscope uh, or even the, the application, uh, the type of, uh, of, of specimen you may be imaging. Uh, Remember from the last slide, there can be major differences in the emission spectra of the light sources. And these presets are going to help get closer to the target. Uh, The term target in this case is referring to an industry benchmark uh, uh, color temperature uh, for an image. And it it really dates back to the days of film, um, but it's now been uh, adopted and and very well adapted to digital imaging. Uh, The target is around 5000 Kelvin. Um, What's that really mean to me, you you might ask. It's typical that halogens have a color temperature of about 3,000 Kelvin. Um, And you can use a daylight balancing filter, as I mentioned I have on my microscope, to convert the color temperature to approximate 5,000 Kelvin. Um, Some microscope companies will offer these filters with the microscopes, but you could use something like a Kodak 80 series filter um, to do the same thing. Bright white LEDs are are very common in microscopes uh, and they have a color temperature around 6,000 Kelvin. Um, And likewise, you can reduce that color temperature to approach 5,000 Kelvin using a Kodak 81 series filter. Um, What I also want to mention is that when you see daylight um, in the camera software, um, let's say up here in in this, um, that's really referring to a uh, where, where the color temperature has been balanced using a color balancing filter uh, on a on a microscope. So, uh, all right, it's now time for our second poll of the day. Uh, you've all heard of white balance, but why do we use it? Um, is it to ensure that you've got the correct and accurate color in your image. Um, Two, is it to remove a color cast from your image? Three, is it to give you that nice white background in your image? Four, is it both one and three? Or five, is it none of the above? So vote now using that poll option in your webinar controls. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
1: Okay, so the poll results are um, for one, ensures correct color in your image is 26%. Removes color cast from your image is 5%. Three, which is makes image background um, open or white space. For choice four, which is both one and three, is 60% and none of the above is zero so nobody chose that one
0: good cuz that's not the right answer um oh this is uh this is interesting um in uh, truthfully the best answer is actually number 2 it's to remove a color cast from your image so um this is great and and uh, I'll explain a, a little bit uh, more about that but this is this is a really good response uh, thanks everybody for saying that um, so what I'm going to do is uh, do a demonstration with my microscope, and I'm going to show you what white balancing looks like and, and the results that you would achieve. So let me shift out of this, and I'm going to shift into my Luminara software here, and you can see that I, I do have a live image on the screen, right? Okay, so... Um, and the other first thing I want to point out is I love to use a histogram. So if your software has a histogram option, um, please um, use that and, and I'll show you why it's it's useful. Um, at least give give some ideas. But here in, in the uh Infinity software, you can find it under View um, Tools, Auxiliary Windows, Auxiliary Windows, you can see it there at the bottom. It says histogram. Um, the other thing is I can set up my settings and uh interface, and here I can choose histogram and then every time I launch a software, my histogram comes up so that's what I like to do but um so here's this image, and what I want to do is I want to save this just so that we um we have it to refer to so there I'll capture it and I'll just drag that off to the side and let's go back here to this image, and that's live um so First step in white balance, uh, I light, I move my my specimen completely out of the way. I even go off the slide to an open field. I just want to white balance my optical train, just my microscope and any filters that I have on there. I just want to create a white balance. Now, the one thing you can see here on the right is on my histogram is my three color channels are very distinct. Even though this looks fairly gray, it does look pretty blue. And that's, you can see that here that the blue is, is shifted far to the right. So that's that's much more intense in, in this. Um, but what I'm gonna do is white balance. Now I've got two different options here. Uh, this white balance does a global white balance. So it'll sample the entire um, field of view. Um, The other one is an area white balance. It's kind of like an eyedropper tool uh, where you can pick an area uh, and choose that. I don't particularly like using the area white balance because I'm selecting a pixel and it relies on my own bias as to what what to to white balance on. So I'd like to let the algorithm do the work and I choose white balance and watch that histogram. Boom, you see all my color channels are together and you see it's a nice even gray background. Okay, so now I'm going to move my spring my specimen back into view. We'll get pretty close to finding the same field since I only moved in one di- one direction. And voilà. Haha. So, um, although most of you thought that it uh, or many of you actually thought that uh, the purpose of white balance was to um, give uh ensure that we have correct color in the image. Um, you can see that, yeah, the color definitely did change. There's absolutely no guarantee that this, this color is correct, however. <laughs> it may be closer. What it does really well, is white balance will accommodate for difference in color temperature, um, which also has to do with the different um, uh, color channels. So you think back to the spectra, what might be a little warmer, what might, might be a little colder, but we don't know which of these actually has the right color. Anyway, so that is uh, white balance. So let me uh, escape out of the, or close this. Let's go back into the presentation and enlarge that. So um, the to remove the color cast, white balancing uh, will kind of equilibrate those color channels of the camera. It results in a nice gray background. Um, I'm going to say gray should be the target instead of white and your question would be why um well white means that pixels are saturated and that means that some photons or data have been lost or can't be detected so think of a pixel as a a glass and photons as water drops and you fill the glass with with water any additional water coming in can't won't you know won't be detected and gets uh uh just is, is ignored and uh, uh, I don't think that anybody wants to throw data away uh, at least not during acquisition you can choose to do that later and by cropping and so forth but uh, don't do it during ac- acquisition um, the great thing about white balance is that you can do it with your camera software before acquisition, and this is definitely the preferred method, um, or you can use image editing applications to white balance after acquisition. So as I demonstrated, that is white balancing um, before acquisition. And then I would just, after doing that, I would just proceed and and image all of my specimens as normal. I also want to point out that you have the option to white balance once. or you could also use uh, a continuous or automatic white balance. Uh, My preference and recommendation to everyone is white balance once at the beginning of your imaging session. Um, Then uh, as long as you follow good microscopy practices, any color shifts that you may see between specimens can be attributed to the specimen and not the equipment. So you're establishing that baseline uh, with your equipment and then, uh, including the camera, and then anything you see that, that varies um, is is a result of the experimental or, or something else in the system. Could be your staining protocols, for example. Uh, with continuous white balancing, um, you can actually see the color shifting, <laughs> um, even within the same specimen as you pan around. Um, so that's why uh, I don't like the moving target. Um, the main point about... Um, color quality control um, and and what we're discussing is is to be consistent with your approach. If you're going to white balance before acquisition, always do do it that way uh, and vice versa. So if you maybe don't have a white balance or it doesn't work particularly well, um, try to use the same process over and over and over again. And I do want to add a a quick public service announcement. Um, Please document, describe and disclose all of your imaging steps. Um, no matter how routine you might think that they are, uh, include any post-acquisition adjustments. This is a best practice for ethical imaging, and you may be asked to provide that information sometime. So there's a number of other adjustments that can be made to the images. However, I discourage using these. Uh, These adjustments are based uh, primarily on human perception um, and each person really has a different perspective. Uh, what's what's good? What's bad? How far can I push some of these uh, adjustments? Uh, these are difficult then to describe to a peer or to reproduce um, by a peer on, an, on their imaging system. In general, there's very little control when using uh, these settings and they're not going to be the same between manufacturers or software. Um, so, if at all possible, please avoid these adjustments, especially hue and individual channel adjustments. Gamma, um, I will say, can be very useful. Uh, it helps reveal detail that may be in dark regions of a of an image or of a specimen. Um, but I I still recommend not to adjust this setting during acquisition. You can you can uh, adjust gamma um, in in post acquisition adjustments as well. The one caveat. Um, I want to add is that if you feel that you absolutely have to make uh, these types of adjustments, use the exact same adjustments for every image um, uh, that that you're acquiring. Um, This is also best practice for ethical imaging. So this is your third and final poll. Um, Question here is, do you currently make color adjustments after acquisition? So make your selection now. It's a quick yes, no. Um, there's no right or wrong answer. We're just taking polls, see what people do. OK, Amanda, what do we have?
1: So we have 44% voting yes and 56% voting no.
0: All right. I wonder how close that is to being uh, 50-50 you know, within the, uh, the sample. Um, all right, that's good. That's good. And, and I'm sure there's reasons out there. We're not going to delve into what those possible reasons are. But um, as we've been learning, I think so far in, in the webinar, color can vary uh, and does vary. And we need to account for that, um, especially if we're going to be comparing or presenting or even publishing the, these images. Uh, so, so normalizing the color uh, among the images uh, is, is common and it, it could be useful uh, really if you're going to be analyzing those images uh, that, that may originate from different systems or, or different sessions, or, or you have different people taking those images. Um, there's a, a plethora of tools that are available for making necessary adjustments. And I'm, I'm not going to get into any of those, that, that could be a great topic for uh, another talk. Um, I one point that, that may seem obvious and uh, can often be overlooked is uh, to make a copy of your original image. Um, I don't have that here as a bullet, but um, never make any adjustments on your original image. You never know when you have to go back to that that original. It's it's easy to make adjustments that are permanent too if you forget to set up histories and so forth and using these uh, uh, image editing tools, but um, so always make a copy or multiple copies and, and make your adjustments at this copy. Save your original someplace else. Um, you'll also make life so much easier for yourself if you first optimize your camera settings. Uh, so take the best images you can at the beginning. Um, you'll thank yourself because then when you if you uh, feel that you have to make post-acquisition adjustments, you'll be making fewer of them. They won't be as severe, uh, and uh, and you'll be I, I, they will be much more consistent over time. So, um, as I've already said twice already, um, the uh, just be consistent with your adjustments, document and just disclose those. So, if, if you're submitting those images along uh, um, with the manuscript, please you know, describe what you've done uh, and and the reviewers may still come back and ask for additional explanation, but at least you have the information to to provide them. Okay, uh, there we go, there we go. So there are uh, some alternative approaches that are slightly more sophisticated than than what we've already uh, discussed. Um, And these are designed to reduce These approaches do uh, reduce the subjectivity in in the adjustments, Uh, although the first two listed here do involve some level of of human bias um, in which you have to choose a reference image. In histogram matching, for example, the histogram of a target image, so one that you want to change, is adjusted to match the histogram of a reference image. Um, Color deconvolution, rather, breaks down the image into the red, green, and blue color. Components um, of the stains that are used uh, for the specimen, and then it'll remap those colors based on the reference image. On the, okay, uh, and it kind of reassigns into colors. Uh, color deconvolution is often used in color based segmentation for automated image analysis, um, like what's being explored for digital pathology. Color calibration is slightly different. Um, it uses a predetermined standard or reference. Um, ideally, it'd be one that can be used across uh, specimen types and stains. And uh, the idea with calibration is that it eliminates a human bias from the process. Uh, there's only one that I, uh, I know of that was commercialized. Um, others uh, use something similar um, for internal purposes. But uh, this was uh, Chromacal from Datacolor. It's now been discontinued. So this is the standard slide. It's got colors on here that uh, have been measured um, uh, on the slide itself. And then an image of that is measured using the software and then the software combines the measurement from the image to the known values. And then it applies a corrected color profile to, uh, to specimen images. This is all done post acquisition. Um, I, I think ideally calibration should occur prior to acquisition where you calibrate a, a, a system but anyway, now the moment you've all been waiting for—or perhaps not—but um, who? What is this this villain that I I alluded to at the beginning? Well, it, the villain is actually your monitor, um, and and it, I think it seems obvious when you when you sit back and think about it. We've got a huge reliance on computer monitors, not just for evaluating our images, but these monitors are our. Um, our view into the camera to, uh, to set up the acquisition um, uh, parameters. Um, and if anyone else looks at your images on another monitor or a display, I'm sure they're probably not seeing exactly the same thing. The image file itself is exactly the same, but it isn't displayed or rendered the same on a different monitor. I just, I've shared a, a, um, a story. I remember visiting a customer uh, recently at the University of Pennsylvania, and there was an ongoing argument in that lab about which computer monitor um, to use to review images. Um, so they, they, the image color was greatly varied between different monitors. Um, in the end, they just decided to all huddle around the same computer the, at, at their imaging station. Uh, they figured, if not for any other reason, to, that that's where the image was acquired, so it must be right on that computer. Um, uh, is, that, is that you know good? I don't know. Uh, but new, new monitors um, may look really good, but they don't necessarily start off the same. Uh, and they all degrade over time, even the newest OLED technologies. Only a very few monitors are actually calibrated or have built-in calibration, uh, but these are, are going to come with a, a much higher uh, price tag. Good news is you can calibrate your own monitor and you can do it by yourself there's calibration feature in your computer's operating system and it allows you to adjust the uh, the display to deliver an optimal balance of contrast um, they there's they still discourage uh, the adjustment of the hue or the actual color channels um, but it can be done using uh, system based um uh calibration. There's also free and online options uh that, that seem attractive, uh but all of these methods so far um have something in common and they all rely on, on your perception uh and your bias of whether the color you see on on your display is accurate or not. Now, our eyesight varies with the time of day, um also with what we've had to eat or drink, uh even how well we slept the night before. Uh, not to mention, um, high ambient light levels pose uh, one of the biggest challenges to calibrating monitors or seeing color correctly on a monitor. And I don't don't think we all have the opportunity to sit in a darkened room. Um, we we use the space that we that is available. My favorite solution um, is to use commercially available products uh, you can get them fairly cheaply between hundred dollars and two hundred and fifty bucks um, really depending on the um, the features that are included with it but they are combinations of a hardware device uh, they call it, it's called a colorimeter um, to it physically measures the color that's being displayed by your monitor and then they also have software so software shows displays color in the monitor and the colorimeter measures those and then it communicates to software and then it, it then the software knows you know, what to do and what the the right um, adjustments to make to the monitor. Uh, The best part about these solutions is they eliminate human bias. Uh, So it's it's really no wonder why serious photographers will calibrate their monitors. They're all familiar with these these tools. And uh, they also will calibrate their printers. But um, there's also a very high uh, correlation between accuracy of color that you see in something that's been printed and what you see on your display on your monitor. So if you are using your images to publish or to present um, or or to make a poster, what you're gonna see in the printed version is gonna look very similar to what you see on a calibrated monitor. So here's another um, example of uh, customer's monitors. Um, They're all connected to the same PC. Uh, These two monitors on the right um, incidentally happened to be the same brand and they were from the same uh, production batch. They're actually sequential in, in serial number. Uh, but this customer had to compare images all day. Um, they wanted to make sure there was consistency in other aspects of his process, the staining, um, the sectioning, um, uh, the cover slipping and the imaging. So he wanted to make sure that his um, his PC was displaying Um, the colors correctly uh, or or accurately and consistently. So he really had no idea which, which display was right. Um, He calibrated using one of these colorimeter devices and um, now his his, his images all match across the monitors. I think that's pretty impressive. So down to the, to the wrap up. Um, So to review variability um, in our color imaging is inevitable. Uh, We have to accept that and then we can deal with it. Uh, Let's begin by minimizing the variability by establishing a solid foundation with your imaging process and uh, that should begin with good microscopy practices. Uh, Whenever possible use pre-acquisition settings to control the image and the color quality before you ever capture an image Uh, and then use the same um, settings across all of your images. Making adjustments after acquisition is much more subjective and is difficult to repeat exactly on subsequent images. If you really need then to adjust your images after acquisition, be sure to make those adjustments on a copy um, of of the original image. Finally, beware of your computer monitor. Monitors don't always tell you the truth, uh, where monitor calibration is kind of like truth serum. Uh, Only with calibration can you really trust what they show you. So control and consistency in your imaging process uh, are essential to ensuring repeatable, reproducible, high quality color images. And a documented imaging process is key to image quality control. That's all I have for today's webinar. Uh, Thanks to everyone out there. for your time and your attention. Thanks to Amanda and and the folks at uh, Bite Size Bio, and thanks to Luminaire for sponsoring this event.
1: Thanks, Mark. That was an excellent presentation. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So our first question, or our first two questions come come from um, Kavita. And the first one is, how does the amount of voltage apply change over the lamp life? And the follow-up question to that is, will this affect the color of the image?
0: Oh, great great question. Uh, yeah, we don't think about lamp life. Um, uh, and, and voltage, in, in most cases, applies to um, a, anything with a tungsten filament uh, um, or an arc and uh uh definitely over the course of of a lifespan of a, a halogen bulb probably the most common it's that's still out there um, um it, it will it requires more and more voltage to uh, attain the same um uh spectral qualities uh, of of a of a bulb uh generally these are, are difficult to uh to observe because we're looking at bulbs that can last for uh, 6 months to years um, but, uh, you may have to apply a d- more voltage. So, um, as, as I showed very early on, um, talking about voltage and, and not to adjust it when you have low voltage with a halogen lamp, it's a very yellowish looking type, uh, background or a low, uh, color temperature. The more you apply, the higher the color temperature, it looks a little more blue or cooler, um, uh, cast to it. So, um, uh, it may be almost indistinguishable in a, in a near term, but over time, if you want to control uh, compare images uh, that may date compare to images that may date back further, um, that can be an issue. LEDs are professed to to not fluctuate; um, they've got very long lifespans, and and they're supposed to not fluctuate with um, with voltage, uh, with intensity. But uh, I still say rather than trying to determine whether or not your system has any variability, um, um, it's it's best to, uh, to use the camera to do your, uh, your white balancing and then also adjust the intensity of the image uh, using exposure adjustment.
1: Okay. And our next question is from Naveen, and this seems like a technical question to me, but how much of acquisition percentage to illuminated light is acceptable?
0: I'm not really clear. Uh, acquisition to illuminated light is it? Um, it may be related more to the capability of so camera. They follow
1: the camera. up with um, they use values of five to ten for DAPI fluorescence, while protein of interest is at two hundred. I don't know if that helps.
0: Uh, but that's the, the we're getting into uh, into fluorescence there. And so I'm going to. Uh, uh, that that I think it could be addressed off, offline, but really not for this webinar.
1: OK, D- Naveen, if you want to, you can send me your email address, and then I can um, pass it on to Mark. And then we have a question from, um, I'm going to mispronounce your name, I'm sorry, um, Joa, And they say congratulations to Mark. Um, and they're very glad that they attended the presentation. So they want to ask about um, row data. And so they work with fluorescence that has, are with fluorescence and with plant tissue that also has autofluorescence. So, would you have to look at fluorescent work under the same um, settings? Like, would you have to conduct all those things at the same settings?
0: Uh, I, this is more, I think, uh, just a, a question re- related to general imaging um, uh, practices. And um, uh, I, I think it, my my there's, there's several ways to answer that when you get into fluorescence and and autofluorescence and, auto fluorescence. and uh, I would uh, again it's it's more related to fluorescence but um, with any imaging I I try to establish a background and then take everything um, with the the same settings um, in in the case of, of fluorescence. Um, Never start with a negative control. Start with something positive that has a high signal, and then uh, that you be sure then to capture um, the full dynamic range. Otherwise, I, I've seen people use a uh, negative control and they have no idea when they actually get signal. And if you want to lock, then your exposure time um, to to give you some um, qualitative type results, uh, you you don't know really where your where your baseline is, and you wind up going back and having to reimage. So. Um, uh, not sure if that, that answers his, the question, um, but I would I would use the same settings um, across the board, uh, starting with uh, um, some controls on your imaging system. Establish with those controls, even a a, a plain and slide, um, plain color, uh, uh, homogeneous, and then and, and move from there.
1: That makes sense. So to kind of follow up on that, you talked about following good microscopy practices just in this last question and then during your talk. Um, do you have, could you kind of expand upon those?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, and I think that I, I say good microscopy practices because I, I don't know that they've been taught to many people. Um, and it's something that we definitely do up, up at the MBL and all those uh, those courses. But you start with performing color alignment Um, and and the purpose of color alignment is to um, ensure that you've got uh, aligned light uh, through your optical train. Your optical train is perfectly uh, uh, centered and you've got even illumination across the specimen. Um, and you need to do that actually whenever you change objectives. Um, uh, and with uh, transmitted light, it's it's matching the numerical aperture um, of the light being delivered to the specimen and then what is being um, then uh, collected by the objective. So you want the, the NA to to align. So there's often a a uh, condenser uh, uh, aperture adjustment on the condenser and. And uh, you, you can adjust that. It only takes a second, <laughs> truthfully, um, when when you're changing between objectives. And, and I don't see any reason if it's so short why people don't do it all the time. Uh, second thing um, is you want to use, uh, and I think I mentioned this already, use the camera's exposure time to adjust the brightness and not to use the intensity knob uh, on the microscope or the light source as that can change the the color temperature. I showed images earlier on of what happens when you do that. Um, uh, Another thing that you can do um, um, is if if it is very bright, very bright, you can use a neutral density filter to attenuate um, the light um, in addition to adjusting the uh, uh, exposure time. Third thing is white balancing once um, at the beginning of an imaging session um and then using the same camera settings across all of your specimens um during that imaging session um finally then using identical post acquisition adjustments so this is this is all best or or uh, good microscopy practices um get your equipment set up and optimized and then uh follow a uh um a protocol through the the remainder of the process
1: Okay. And then to kind of follow up on you were talking about with white balancing, um, how can you tell if it's working?
0: Um, that's a good question. There's a couple of factors that could contribute to whether you don't know if your white balance is, is working. So um, um, I think that probably the best way to address that first is to, to first a trust trusted it 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 is working so if you have a, a histogram make sure that's that's showing move the slide um, out of the um, the light path and take a look at the background um, and, and and your histogram and if the channels are not overlaid then do your uh, do your white balance and see if it if it does uh, uh, affect that um, that histogram and and overlay. And if it does, then you know that it's working. Um, you could also just to test, um, you could put, um, a piece of, of colored filter, colored plastic or something, um, over top of your light and, uh, and, and try that white balance and see if that moves. And then, um, and then, then you know whether or not the, an algorithm is actually functioning and, and the camera is sensing it. Um, the um, um, Finally, the, the other thing you may not know, if, if white balancing seems to be working on the camera uh, in, in the software, um, you need to know whether or not your monitor is showing the colors properly. So it, the camera could be working in, in software, but your monitor may be off um, so uh, if that's the case, you know if the background kind of looks, you know, if a blank and empty field looks bluish or pinkish um, or yellowish, that it could be then your monitor and, and not, not your imaging system. So then you may need to do a uh, a calibration on your monitor. Um, you could always look at another image that has like a, a white or something gray or a gray scale and see if that looks the same uh, on your monitor. So if you know then white balance is working and the colors don't look right on your monitor. It's probably your monitor's at
1: fault. Okay. And then we have one last question from um, Chung asking if there is any commercially available section for color calibration. So I think they're asking about um, like a slide or something that you can put under the scope to see.
0: Um, There are... Devices that are, are available out, available out there. Um, most people make them, and you can um, find references, um, citations for these. Um, and uh, what many people will do, and it, it really came up in the, in the world of digital pathology for whole slide whole slide scanning and some of these automated analyses. And people will take um, plastic film, colored plastic film. Uh, I think Roska Lux. Filters are ones that, that people will use, and uh, and they kind of create their own little calibration slide. And you can find references to these that then uh, will use some color management approaches. Um, you can measure these. If you've got them large enough, you can uh, actually scan them with a spectrophotometer, and then you can use uh, um, color management methodologies to um, to calibrate your Im- the images uh and that's probably the cheapest um approach as filters are relatively inexpensive and and you can um you know cement them onto microscope slides and with with cover glasses i don't know of anything that is uh commercialized um at this point the one that i, I showed is not available um at this time but um uh a a quick uh search of of pubmed should should find you some examples that you can follow in the lab Uh, they should be yes. Uh, you may find some um, because of spherical aberrations. Um, you you may and some and some chromatic aberrations within your uh, optical train, your your objectives and so forth. That not every pixel is going to be exactly the same uh, because it's not doing a pixel by pixel white balance. Um, it is a uh, field based white balance.
1: Okay. Well, that looks like our last question, so that brings us to the end of the, web, of the webinar. So thanks again, Mark, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsor, Luminara.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar, I would like to view the video recording of the session. Please, please visit the seminar's page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we've lined up for you in Bite Size Bio. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at Luminera and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com webinars.
0: Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Bench the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice
1: from seasoned scientists.